You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Well, once again, I'm Marty Birch. Glad to be able to uh, be with you as we go through uh, Romans this morning, continuing our series. Uh, we're in a section in chapter 6 where Paul asks a couple of questions and then gives us a response. We looked at the first question in the chapter last week. This week we're, lo- we're looking at the second question that he asks I wonder if you have ever heard these kind of statements. You can't tell me what to do. You aren't the boss of me. If you've had kids, you have heard them talk that way to each other. I know Joni and I heard it with increasing frequency as our kids grew, particularly as they became preteens. But my kids are 28 and 24 today, and if we were in a a family gathering and they talked that way, we'd be a little concerned. But I remember those years all too well. Not only did they say that to each other, but eventually there came a time where they said that kind of thing to us. Man, that is a rough, rough ride when you're a parent and they question your authority. Uh, There are times that I remember wanting to be very emphatic and say something like this. Listen here, you little anarchists. As a matter of fact, your mother and I are the boss of you. Because there is a period of time where I think all of us struggle with the who and the what of authority over us. And let's face it. Some of the biggest questions we wrestle with even today are questions of authority. Now, I want to share some recent challenges that do not have easy answers. I acknowledge as you hear these, you may feel uneasy, but I want you to feel the tension for a reason. Who gets to tell me what is healthy for me? Is that the job of the federal government? the state governor, the state legislature, the county health department, my doctor? Who helps out if economic hardship hits? Is that my employer's job? Is that the the job of federal assistance? Do I just take care of that myself? How do we fix a societal injustice? Is it done through legislation, through protest, through social shaming, by removing monuments, by writing checks? You see, there are a lot of questions in our society that ultimately become issues of authority. And our structured culture, which by the way was structured by a wise God who has created us to live under authority, challenges us challenges us in the issue of authority. Ultimately, we're called to live under God's authority. But even in those human institutions, there are smaller authorities, parents, teachers, legal systems, law enforcement, legislatures, courts of law, even traffic signs are all examples of authorities that, like it or not, in one sense or another, become the boss of me, often for very helpful and good reasons. 
So as we look at our text this morning, we want to follow just a two-step roadmap that helps us answer this important question of God's authority and how we should understand God's authority in the light of God's grace. The roadmap is this. First, a question. Does grace mean that God's law is not the boss of me? We'll spend a short time here. Then there's a response And the response that Paul gives is something like this, you are going to obey something. Most of our sermon will be spent here. Let's look first at the question, does grace mean that God's law isn't the boss of me? Look at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. By no means. Now, why is Paul asking this particular question? You see, last week, we summarized the first half of chapter 6 looking to answer another important question. We put it this way, does grace mean that I can just sin all that I want? And we saw that the answer to that question was, no, we could not sin all we want because we are dead to sin and alive in Jesus. Now, I realize that Paul's question here, are we to sin because we're not under law but under the grace, almost sounds to us like the same question that we looked at last week, which Paul asked this way, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? But actually, three words in the text today show us that the question is dramatically different, and that's the phrase, not under law. Paul is taking in this section, the potential objections to the gospel that Jewish legalists in Rome might have had, and he's answering them one by one, carefully and lovingly with the truth of the gospel. When we began this series in Romans, I discovered that the book of Romans, if you listen to it in an audio Bible, sounds a whole lot like a 45-minute sermon. In fact, it takes about 45 minutes. If you're looking for an app that lets you do that, I recommend Bible.is. Great app. You can even get the English Standard Version and just start in Romans 1 and listen to the whole sermon. And in 45 minutes, you will hear Paul preach a really great sermon. But about five minutes earlier in the sermon, what we would call Romans 5.20, Paul says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This would have caused those Jewish legalists in Rome who were struggling with what the, how to balance the gospel with their past, this would have caused them to go, what does he mean by that? And now he's coming back to explain what it means that the law increased the trespass. Last week's question helped us understand that last phrase, that grace abounded all the more. This week, he's going to unpack further the question of what's my relationship with God's law. In fact, this question is so important for the original readers in Rome that he's going to actually spend all of what we know as chapter 7 continuing the discussion. You'll hear more of that over the next two weeks to hear all that Paul has to say, but today we start thinking about the law of God in terms of the authority of God, in terms of the authority of God. The reason that Paul brings the question up is because the law is very important. 
The law is very important. He lets us know that he would address this by the way he ends his answer to the first question that we looked at last week in Romans 6.14, where he said this, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You see, all of the Old Testament is sacred scripture. It is the word of God. In fact, for the audience that Paul was writing to, it was the exclusive scripture that they were reading and preaching in their gatherings. They needed to understand what it meant for them as Christians to to see how God's word related to their lives. Just like today, we have no problem reading, preaching, understanding, and applying the Old Testament with gospel clarification. They needed to be able to do the same thing. Paul sees that obedience to to the law was a good thing because ultimately it was obedience to the authority of God. He will talk about it a lot more, as we said in chapter 7, but for now he actually agrees with his critics that though the Old Testament law speaks differently because of the gospel, it is still good and important. So we've seen this question in verse 15 is important because of the way Paul had to deal with his critics. It's important because the Old Testament is important, but it's also important because grace is important. Remember, living under the gospel is living living under God's grace. From Romans 5, Paul has already made the point that Jesus died for for us while we were weak, while while we were sinners, and while we were God's enemies. We literally cannot do one thing to improve our situation because of our sinfulness. Jesus had to die to be the pure, free gift of God's grace. That is grace. When Paul's talking about grace, he's talking about what we did not deserve in Jesus. That reality feels very, very different from God's law, which contained detailed lists of what God expected the Israelites to do in order to be his people. Paul taught that because Jesus came to fulfill all of that, we don't now do, but rather we receive and believe the free gift This reality is challenging to bring into balance with what had come before it. That's why the Jews in Rome were struggling, and Paul wants them most to get grace. But here's the danger. There is a danger when we realize that an authority is no longer over us. You see, imagine if a teacher just abandoned a classroom, walked out 15 minutes after school started, never came back in the room. Kids in the classroom would feel simultaneously liberated and maybe a little scared. Chaos would probably soon follow, because without the school teacher bringing authority, useful content, and discipline, their natures left unchecked would result in an experience very bad for them. So how we answer who is the boss of me is very important. And if God's Old Testament law is no longer the boss, does it mean I have no boss at all? See, the Jews are accusing Paul of chasing the teacher out of the classroom. And now who's going to be in charge? That's what Paul is going to help us understand. And by the way, that, sta- that very strong reaction that we looked at last week where Paul says, answers, by no means... 
which I told you last week, it's a mix of saying, no way with a tone of, you have got to be kidding me underneath it. That's the same answer Paul gives to this second charge found in Romans 6. Verse 16 now starts unpacking what our response should be to the thought that the law is no longer the boss. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, of our obedience which leads to righteousness? You see, here's the underlying issue. Sin, law, and grace all require some obedience. Sin, law, and grace all require some obedience. Paul talks about disobedience under sin. And the reality is that without God's intervention, you and I will always obey sin because we are born slaves to sin. Our first tendency is to follow its leadership. Why? Because slaves obey masters. Paul talked about this some earlier in Romans 6. We looked at that last week. This is the dominant metaphor in our passage And that's this, when we sin, it can control us. Sin can be our master and has a very deceptive way of controlling us. For instance, have you ever noticed that if you tell a lie, it's not just one lie. It's almost always a string of lie after lie after lie. It's why the thought, just one more drink, leads to an empty bottle and more disappointment and pain than anyone ever thought that it would. It is how one hidden lust, like the belief that private porn use is just a personal issue, can over time lead to a humiliating moral breakdown. Sin forces us into obedience by entrapping, enslaving, and dominating. And did you notice this in the text? Obeying sin as our master has a bad end, death. Now, let's move from this concept of obedience to sin to talk about obedience under the law, because he is addressing people who have a certain notion of obedience under the law. When you and I think of the law, we probably think of the Ten Commandments as the easiest way for us to remember that. And it's probably the very first thing that came to mind for these folks as well. I mean, God was so final with the Ten Commandments that he took his own finger and he wrote them on stone tablets, making sure they would be indelible in the minds of his people. And obedience to those at that time was a good thing. Obeying the law under Moses led to God's deliverance and acceptance, but it too had a very uh, difficult outcome potentially for along with the blessing of obedience... God pronounced curses on those who would be disobedient to the law. The law was a good thing for helping orient us to understanding that we've got to obey God. But in this passage, obeying God leads to good things, even if the law shows us how much we lack the ability to do so, which is one of the points that will be carried on in Romans. Remember how Paul's critics sort of accused Paul of kicking the teacher out of the classroom? You see, we realize that the role of the teacher helps build a lifetime of good discipline, growth, and submission to proper authority. God's word and his law function like that. Paul said as much in Galatians 3, 24 and 25. 
where he says this, So the law has become our tutor, our teacher, to bring us to Christ. Probably the law was meant to point to Jesus. That we might be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a teacher. So just like students under a teacher obey classroom order, complete assigned tasks in order to advance in, in their instructions, so past obedience that God required from his law was a good thing. It was a good thing for the Jews in Rome to want to obey God's law. And even though grace in the gospel changes our standing with God's law, it is still a good thing every time to obey what God says. We just obey God's truth now because it's obedience under grace. See, we've seen obedience to sin. We've seen obedience to law. Obedience under grace is what Paul is emphasizing. This is where he's trying to show us our response in verse 17. We can be thankful that God has now brought Jesus as our Savior, able to help us not only be freed from the penalty of sin, but empowered to fight the presence of sin. And we are no longer bound to obey the law that shows us our sin because Jesus has perfectly obeyed. Slaves obey masters, and sin is no longer our master to obey. So in the next three verses, Paul lays out how great it is to obey grace by letting us evaluate the two options. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So here are the two options. They could not be any more vivid. You are either a slave to sin or you are going to be a slave to God. It's one or the other. Paul is saying that everybody is going to be a slave. And he's emphasizing obedience in its strictest sense. Remember, we talked about it last week. And it first came up in verse 6 where we were reminded that before salvation, every person has been born enslaved to sin. And Paul is now just continuing to dive into this idea further in our text, in these verses, verses 17 through 19, you can see the phrase, once slaves. You were once slaves. That's a natural condition. You can't change it by yourself. It is what all of us are by birth and even by choice when we deliberately choose to sin. Because he also says, you presented yourselves as slaves, showing that we make willful choices. Because we know no other life, it's, it's easy to just keep sinning. I want to pause for a moment and address what I think is probably an uncomfortable tension we all feel when Paul uses this metaphor. Because I realize that the concept of slavery as we know it in American history is a rightfully repellent notion. It should always be so. Never again should racial, ethnic, or economic justifications allow us to devalue people for whom Christ died, people who are beautifully and powerfully created to bear the image of God. Amen? Let's all hate that, okay? But the concept of slavery and the metaphor of slavery is what Paul uses. And we look at it today 
from our context. And sometimes I just ask this question, Holy Spirit, did you know that a bunch of Americans right now in the 21st century who are wrestling through still the cultural ramifications of what slavery did in this country, did you know that they would read this text and struggle with what it means? And the answer is yes. God knew that. Paul himself felt the tension of the metaphor of slavery in teaching us how to deal with sin. Did you notice this phrase in the text? I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. You see, Paul, I think himself, is letting us know that the concept of dying to the old master sin and living under a new master Jesus, living like a slave, is a limited metaphor. It's a human term. I had a seminary professor who used to use this phrase when talking about how to deal with a metaphor when we see it in the text. He'd say this, be careful not to make a metaphor walk on all fours. And what he meant is that metaphors usually are just making one point. They're making just one point. They have a limitation. And I think that is very true with what Paul is doing when he's talking about slavery. He's not talking about all of slavery. He's talking about one point, and it's obedience to a master. It's obedience to a master. That is what Paul keeps referring to over and over and over in our text. So we should keep it in proper perspective, because realize even Jesus himself reminds us that we come to him as a master, but he treats us as a very different master. Look at what he told his disciples in John 15, 15. He said, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So when you're willing to have the devotion of a slave to Jesus, guess what? He doesn't see you as a slave, he sees you as a friend. Jesus is our master, but he's more than a master. He calls us friends, intimate, close friends with whom he shares all that the Father has made known to us. Slave owners only tell slaves what they need to know. Jesus doesn't do that. He shares with us the very life he has with God the Father. Now Paul wants to open our eyes to the truth of our complete freedom from our old master of sin. Now, remember last week, he told us we are dead to sin. Sin cannot claim you as its property any longer. You cannot get any work out of a dead slave. The gospel teaches that there's a freedom from the lies that sin told us when sin was our master because we aren't slaves to sin. Instead, we have this new, joyful master to obey, a perfect, loving, gracious master so that we can reject the option of being a slave to sin and instead joyfully and willfully enjoy the freedom of being a slave to God. You see, the New Testament absolutely asks us to adopt a slave's mindset toward our devotion to following Jesus. I'm indebted to reading John MacArthur's book simply entitled Slave to bring a biblical perspective on this. He he talks about five characteristics of a slave in the New Testament in that book, and it's a good read if you want to do so. One of those five, though, is what I think Paul is emphasizing in Romans 6, and it's this. 
It's the reality that a slave serves with singular devotion. Singular devotion. In Colossians 1.10, Paul tells Christians that serving like a slave is about seeking to please just one person. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. You see, we want to please our master in the way we live. That's what the word walk means. It means the way you live. I want to do the things that Jesus and God's word tell me to do. Jesus put it this way in John 13, 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In Romans 14, 18, Paul also talks about this single-minded service to Jesus, that it has an additional benefit of bringing peace and joy into our relationships with one another. He says, whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So what does it mean for me to be a slave of God? I think there are four words that we ought to wake up to every morning. The simple and real and challenging thought, I only obey God. I only obey God. You see, we've seen these issues that sin, law, and grace all require obedience. We've seen the two possible options. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. But let's look at the outcomes of these options in verses 20 through 23, the final segment of our text. Paul says this, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting out of that time uh, from from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just as there are two options, these options also have two outcomes. It's very serious. It's very simple. First, sin's slavery leads to lawlessness, shame, and death. Lawlessness, shame, and death. But God's slavery leads to freedom, holiness, and eternal life. You see, God has always provided his people with a way to him. He did this through the law, and even before Moses brought the law. I feel like Paul is doing something similar in this text, in this appeal, as Moses did toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 30, we have this call. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And Paul is saying, choose to be the slave of God that you can really be free and live. Paul is asking the Christian to remember this choice. Ask yourself this, what did sin ever really give me? Paul says it's stuff you're ashamed of. Paul's answer is the very best it gives you is shame and death. 
Man, I don't want to wallow in a bunch of sinful regrets. Does anybody want to wake up in the morning and make that your goal for the day? Jesus offers so much more. So what does obedience to trust the gospel give a person? Well, you get a freeing, rewarding life that can please God that continues on with eternal life. There is such freedom in honestly confessing sin, turning to Jesus as your Savior, living life in Him. That means that you believe that Jesus died for your sin, that He took your punishment, that He offers complete forgiveness so that you can follow Him as your new boss. It isn't easy. I won't lie to you about that. It isn't easy. You will be expected to obey Jesus as your new master. But remember, he comes not only as master, but as friend. And it's so much easier than the impossible hard slavery to sin. Jesus himself put the invitation this way in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. That leads us this morning to what I'm calling the big idea and the big response. They are one and the same. Choose to obey the gospel so that you can know freedom, right living, and eternal life. This is the point of the sermon. This is our application to the sermon. Christians, you could be sitting here this morning and you've been nodding your head. Yes, I believe Jesus is my master, and some of you have been brave enough a few times to say amen to the message already. But here's the thing, and Paul will bring this out to us even more in the coming weeks. That old master sin still likes to take his bony zombie hands of death and place them on you and try to claim ownership. And sometimes... Sometimes we act like we are sin's slave again, more than we may care to admit if we're honest. But you know what? You don't have to surrender to a master you died to. You can kick sin right back into the grave that Jesus buried your sinful self in. You confess your sin. You turn to obeying your new master so that you receive a grace you did not earn, so that you can get the life you always wanted. And you commit to taking on that light yoke from Jesus to find the rest and forgiveness he always offers. Man, we ought to be sharing that good news everywhere we go, people. Now, some of you this morning may feel that the shame and grip of a lot of a sin, and you just have not been able to shake that. And for the first time, maybe you are seeing the need for Jesus as your Savior and Master. I want to tell you this, that the very best time to turn to Him is right now. And you can start your new life with Jesus as your Master if you honestly would believe and pray something like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'm so ashamed of the wrongs that I've done. I believe that on the cross you died for my sin. And that I can be completely forgiven by you, and I want you to be the boss of me, and I want to do what you show me to do. I want to follow you now. Forgive my sin. Be my Savior. Be my new permanent master and friend.
You see, when we choose to obey the gospel, we enjoy everything that our master loves to give us. Amen? When we choose to obey the gospel, we experience the peace of saying, Jesus, you are the boss of me. Because everybody obeys something. Will you obey Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you gave everything to us. You have kept nothing back, but took upon yourself the form of a slave and made yourself nothing and became obedient to death, even death on a cross for us. Could we do any less than seek to serve you with that same single-minded devotion and gratefulness for the new life you give us. Jesus, thank you, thank you that you don't call us slaves, but you call us friends, even as you call us to obey you as our master. Jesus, my prayer is that we would live that out. If someone's here this morning who wants to know you in this way, I pray that they would trust you now in your holy name. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.